Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. Hey, it's Sarah. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. It's the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, and it's time for the News Roundup. Since the founding of our republic, only five House members have ever been expelled from Congress. Three were given the boot for disloyalty to the Union in 1861. The other two were thrown out after being found guilty of bribery and corruption. This week, George Santos became the sixth, and the New York representative is not going quietly. If this building, if this city put the effort to fixing our country the same way that they put on expelling me, we'd be in a better place. But this place is littered in political theater, and the American people are the ones paying the price. Our wrap-up of the week's news includes map-making in Georgia, a big money move that has more people talking about Nikki Haley's campaign, and some touching remembrances as former First Lady Rosalind Carter is finally laid to rest. Let's introduce our panel. Benji Sarlin is the Washington Bureau Chief for Semaphore. Welcome back, Benji. Good to be here. Libby Casey is Senior News Anchor covering politics and breaking events at the Washington Post Live Moments team. Hi, Libby. Hi, Sarah. And Jordan Fabian is White House Correspondent for Bloomberg. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me back. We begin in Vermont, where on Monday, police charged a local man with three counts of attempted second-degree murder in the shootings of three college students of Palestinian descent. The attack drew condemnation from across the country. The shooter has pleaded not guilty. Libby, I'll start with you. What can you tell us about this attack and how people have been responding? Well, these three young men who were all 20 years old were doing what so many of us were doing this weekend. They were visiting family on Thanksgiving, uh, visiting the relatives of one of the three. These are three friends who grew up together. They were students together in the West Bank at a Quaker school, and they're all in the United States studying. Um, they were walking, the family says, uh, minding their own business, speaking in a mix of English and Arabic, and a man pulled out a gun and shot them. Uh, the families feared that they were targeted because they were Arab and they were wearing a kafayas, those square checkered scarves that are traditional uh, and have become badges of Palestinian identity. The man who's accused of shooting them, this 48-year-old man, uh, has not yet been charged with a hate crime. A local prosecutor has said that uh, it is a hateful act, but we're all still watching to see if they believe it classifies as a hate crime. Uh, you know, the student, there, these three men are students at. Brown University, Trinity College, and Haverford. And at each of those schools, there's been a real outpouring of support for these young men and just outrage and, and a sense of fear of how this could happen. And Sarah, I do want to point out that this happens, you know, just a few weeks, six weeks or so after a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was stabbed to death in Illinois uh, in what is being called a hate crime. Right. And the uncle of one of the students, Kenan Abdul Hamid, his uncle's Radi Tamimi, said the family thought he would be safer in the U.S. than where he grew up. Kenan grew up in the West Bank, and we always thought that that could be more of a risk in terms of his safety. 
and sending him here would be a, the right decision. And we feel somehow betrayed, and you know we're just trying to come to terms with everything. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders denounced the attack. In a statement, he said, quote, It is shocking and deeply upsetting that three young Palestinians were shot here in Burlington. Hate has no place here or anywhere. Now, Jordan, Vermont is known as a progressive state. I mean, Bernie Sanders is one of the senators. Burlington is a liberal city. What does this attack say about the state of the country right now, the fact that something like this could happen there? Well, Sarah, you've just seen uh, hate and bias incidents uh, against both you know, Arabs, Muslims, and, and Jewish people explode in the wake of the Hamas attack on October 7th and the ensuing war. Uh, both the Council on American-Islamic Relations and the Anti-Defamation League have reported bias incidents, incidents of hate have you know, increased by 200, 300% uh, just in the weeks since October 7th. So uh, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people here in the U.S. want to try and fight this war out uh, amongst themselves here at home and take it out uh, on on Muslims, uh, Arabs and Jews. Uh, and, and it's just been uh, a very hard problem for policymakers to grapple with, for uh, lawmakers to grapple with, uh, law enforcement and, and just torn apart communities everywhere. Uh, you see it's uh, reaching Vermont as well as you know, Illinois, where uh, the Palestinian boy was shot, college campuses across the country. Uh, and it's really shown no sign of letting up. And just for a sense of just how serious this was, the mother of another student, Hisham Arwatani, told NPR her son may lose the use of his legs because of his injuries. Benji, what concerns are you hearing from from lawmakers, from elected officials about this rise in anti-Palestinian and anti-Jewish violence, as Jordan just mentioned, since the war broke out between Israel and Hamas terrorists in Gaza? Uh, It's been a very, very major concern on the Hill, both in the White House, in Congress, certainly within the Democratic Party, especially where most Jewish members are and all Muslim members. Uh, It's been something that members have been grappling with and debating a lot. You've seen a lot of statements constantly from just about every Democrat condemning anti-Semitism one hour, Islamophobia the next hour. Um, It can be difficult because they have very strong disagreements over Israel. Um, And they're very conscious that they have to have those disagreements publicly without directing hate towards each other. So you have the case of someone like, for example, Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian member of Congress who members often strongly disagree with uh, on Israel and even some Democrats cross party lines to pass a measure censoring her. They also are very aware that she herself faces absolutely vile attacks and real threats over her religion and ethnic background. And they, they definitely don't want to inflame that either. So, you know, people are, are, are struggling with this right now. I think one of the most interesting moments on this recently was Chuck Schumer delivered a 41-minute speech on anti-Semitism this week that I think captured what a lot of Jewish Americans were feeling, which is that, just like in Congress, most Jewish Americans are Democrats who are getting into arguments uh, over Israel from a wide variety of perspectives from across, you know, from across the spectrum. But they're also very concerned about the rise in anti-Semitism. And that same speech humor also brought up the rise in, is anti, in anti-Islamic sentiment. It's just something that everyone is dealing with in their own way. And they're just are not easy answers right now. Yeah, let's just hear a little bit of that speech from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Wednesday. I have noticed a significant disparity between how Jewish people regard the rise of anti-Semitism 
and how many of my non-Jewish friends regard it. To us, the Jewish people, the rise of anti-Semitism is a crisis, a five-alarm fire that must be extinguished. Libby, what were your takeaways from Schumer's speech? Mm, You know, he is the highest-ranking elected Jewish official in the country currently, and also in history, Sarah. And so he took this responsibility in this speech um, very seriously and was really crafting it to try to send a couple different messages. You know, he wanted to give it this historical context of how the normalization and sort of the slow creep of rise and hatred can cause something on the scale of the Holocaust. And he talked about his own family, both the both what he called sort of the gift of America, that he could be the, Chuck Schumer could be the son of an exterminator and has risen to be a U.S. senator. But at the same time, he had relatives in Europe who were annihilated. The whole family was wiped out uh, because of Nazi Germany. Um, and so he's, he's ringing this alarm bell. Now he has to walk this careful line though, because he also said, as Benji talked about, how he's concerned about the Palestinian civilians. He called for a two-state solution, something that just feels like a distant echo right now as, as we're watching what's unfolding in Gaza, um, and, and tried to both walk the politics, but also give this vital historical context for what he and so many other Jewish Americans are feeling. Benji, a group of Senate Democrats met with senior-level Israel Defense Forces officials on Monday. Reports say they discussed the Israel-Hamas war, as well as concerns about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. What else do we know about that meeting? Well, we know that some of the people they met with are Democrats who have been generally supportive of Israel, but extremely concerned about the conduct of the war and the plans for what happens both during and after it. Um, There are a lot of Democrats, I think, who you know, have said publicly they believe in Israel's right to defend itself. They've strongly condemned what happened with Hamas. They understand the need for some military response. But they're very worried about the alarming number of civilian casualties. Uh, they, they want to know a lot more about what Israel's process is for minimizing those casualties. Uh, the Gaza, the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry uh, estimates it's over 14,000 people who have died, and a very high percentage are believed to be children, entire families wiped out. You know, while there's no, while there's disagreement over the exact number, there's no doubt the this is an extremely severely damaging war. Um, there's also a lot of questions for what about what comes afterwards. You know, it, it, the uh, senators want to know, for example, if they are supporting continued military action in Israel, that there's some plan. Uh, that there is, you know, who is going to run Gaza afterwards? Uh, how is its security going to be guaranteed? So I think this reflects a lot of discontent that Israel is aware exists in the Democratic side of the aisle. We're going to head to a quick break here, but before we do, we have some sad news to share. A Supreme Court spokesperson announced Sandra Day O'Connor has died at the age of 93. Justice O'Connor was appointed in 1981, making her the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit... 
We want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Now back to the Roundup and let's head to Capitol Hill, where drama is playing out over the removal of New York Republican Congressman George Santos from office. It's all theater. It's theater for the cameras. It's theater for the microphones. It's theater for the American people at the expense of the American people because no real work's getting done. Congressman Santos. Congressman Santos. That, of course, was Congressman George Santos speaking outside the Capitol on Thursday. Santos faced his third expulsion vote from Congress today. It's the first since the House Ethics Committee released a report saying Santos broke federal laws and misused campaign funds for personal use. Benji, what did this report reveal? So it was a wide variety of uh, campaign finance violations for the most part. The biggest thing is what you mentioned, campaign funds for personal use. This is extremely easy to explain. It's just an accusation that Santos used money to pay his credit card bills, to buy luxury clothes, to pay for uh, an adult site. Uh, it's it's pretty straightforward there. And it, the ethics committee took a pretty, you know, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but extremely unusual step of even with a pending criminal case that's also tied to these same same charges, uh, recommending that he be expelled. Uh, which, which is the ethics chairman, who is Republican, recommended his expulsion. In fact, filed a resolution that is now being used. So it's it's a uh, pretty severe charges, I would say. There's there's little disagreement over that. To the extent there is uh, disagreement, it is over procedural reasons, and I think probably quite a bit of unease among Republicans about losing another vote in what is a very very tight majority right now. And members of the House of Representatives have voted today to expel New York Republican George Santos from Congress with a vote of 311 to 114. At a news conference on Wednesday, Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson expressed, quote, real reservations about removing Santos. Jordan, where do Republicans stand on this expulsion vote? Well, like any other issue, Sarah, there's a lot of divisions within the Republican Party on this. There are people like Speaker Johnson and others who are wary about expelling George Santos because they're worried it sets a bad precedent to expel a member before there's a criminal conviction. And uh, others have said that they believe it should be up to the voters in the district uh, whether George Santos continues to serve or not. And in fact, I believe Speaker Johnson said uh, earlier uh, Friday that uh, he would not vote for the uh, motion to remove uh, George Santos. But there are others, including Santos's colleagues, who believe George Santos is a stain, and they're seeing attacks from Democrats uh, almost daily tying all of them uh, to George Santos. And I should say that a lot of these members represent vulnerable districts. So they are worried that George Santos is an anchor on their chances of getting reelected, and then could that in turn could jeopardize the Republican majority in the next Congress. So uh, I, I think leaders are not really sure how this will all turn out, but uh, there are certainly divisions there. Now to another big story, also on Capitol Hill. A congressional deal for aid to Ukraine and Israel is likely to come down to one issue, that issue being funding at the U.S. border. My priorities one, two, and three are the border, the border, and the border. 
and that unless there's meaningful reform that secures our border, we're hell no. That was Kansas Republican Senator Roger Marshall speaking at a news conference on Wednesday. President Biden is requesting more than $60 billion in funding for Ukraine, about $14 billion for Israel, and about $13.6 billion for the U.S. border. Libby, what is preventing him from getting these funds from Congress? Well, you know how easy the issue of immigration is to sort out on Capitol Hill. I mean, throwing immigration into the mix is such a powder keg. So Senator Schumer, the top Democrat, has set up a warning flare saying the Senate is going to push through this. They're trying to vote as early as next week. That's putting some pressure on negotiations. And there is this bipartisan working group that's trying to sort things out. But there are real issues here, not just over dollars, but over Uh, policies, especially over asylum. And so they're trying to discuss and debate whether the asylum seekers who enter the United States and qualify for a hearing before an immigration judge, whether that criteria could be tightened. Uh, Obviously, the funding for Ukraine and for Israel are huge priorities for President Biden. The problem that some of the Republicans and the senator are saying is anything you send over to the House will be dead on arrival, so it has to get worked out now before it heads over to the other chamber. Benji, what else can you tell us about how these negotiations are playing out? What might a deal look like? Well, our reporter, Joseph Sabias Roig, has been covering these talks and talking to the small working group of senators throughout the last few weeks. They've been trying to hash out a border deal. Um, One area where there seems to be the most likely agreement is a change in the standard for asylum. Uh, The likeliest route to this is raising the so-called credible fear standard, you know, which determines whether a migrant can be let in for further screening at the border as a potential asylum case based on whether they have a credible fear of what happens, you know, if, if they're not allowed in. But the the biggest sticking point at the moment is over what is called parole. So this is a uh, an executive uh, ability that the president has used extensively to allow hundreds of thousands of migrants into the country. It's been used in a couple of ways. One is to allow people who are not presenting themselves at the border a legal channel to try to apply, pass a background check, show they have a sponsor, and then come in the country as an alternative to just showing up in this totally unorganized mess at the border. Now, as for that unorganized mess... When border stations are overwhelmed, which they frequently are, parole can be a way to move some migrants into the country temporarily in order to deal with their cases later. And that's been especially contentious. This is seen as, you know, a so-called, quote, catch and release by many Republicans. And they believe that it's being used too frequently. Uh, This is an area where Democrats are reluctant to curb the White House's uh, powers on this too much. They think it's an important tool. And right now, uh, talks seem to be essentially paused on this issue. Uh, Someone is going to need to give in one direction. And, And Benji, I mean, the clock is ticking. How likely are they to reach a deal before the session ends mid December? It's going to be a very tough lift. Immigration is something where I've covered negotiations for over a decade. They tend not to go anywhere. But they have uh, extremely strong reason to get this done before the holidays, if it's going to get done at all. Um, Aid to Ukraine, which really is a major priority for the Republican senators negotiating this. It's absolutely an important important deal to them. Uh, That aid is running out. And the political debate is only getting tougher the longer this drags on, and there's more and more Republican skepticism towards aid towards Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, Israel aid is tied to this too, and of course, the political situation around that, there's a lot of support on the Hill for passing a, an aid package to Israel as fast as possible. So my guess is this has to happen before the holidays one way or another. 
I want to move on to some campaign news because the campaign is upon us. Over the weekend, former President Donald Trump, who, of course, is the Republican frontrunner, criticized the Affordable Care Act on social media. He wrote, quote, the cost of Obamacare is out of control, plus it's not good health care. I'm seriously looking at alternatives, he said. Now, the Biden campaign quickly jumped on that. And my predecessors once again, God love him, call for cuts that could rip away health insurance for tens of millions of Americans in Medicaid. They just don't give up. But guess what? We won't let these things happen. So the Biden campaign is now running campaign ads nationally about what the president has done to lower medication prices. Jordan, why do you think the Biden camp was so quick to use health care as a campaign issue here? Uh, Obamacare is broadly popular. Uh, the polls I looked at showed that you know six to ten Americans support it, and this is one of the few issues where voters seem to trust Democrats over Republicans, according to recent polls, as opposed to issues like the economy, inflation, you know, the Middle East, where they give Republicans higher ratings. So the Biden campaign is trying to seize on this momentum and punish Donald Trump for basically saying that he's going to try again to repeal and replace Obamacare if he's again elected to the White House. It's part of a broader push to really highlight a lot of the policies that the Biden campaign and Democrats say are are extreme that Trump would try to do uh, if he were elected again. So uh, their, their view, again, is that Trump kind of served them an issue here on a silver platter. Libby, what do you make of the Biden campaign uh, taking on the Affordable Care Act as as an issue here? I mean, obviously, this was a failure for Republicans in 2017, as Jordan alluded to. Ready to go. They're thrilled about this. You know, we all have the memories of 2017 when Trump tried to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Remember that uh, John McCain moment where he did the thumbs down and that was it? When you talk to Republican senators and ask them about Trump's plans to throw out Obamacare, they give you this like glazed look, just like members of the House do when you ask them about George Santos. This is not something that's on their agenda. And so for the Biden team, this is an opportunity. And so they're enlisting Nancy Pelosi, they're ramping up this effort we've just heard about uh, to try to highlight just what they think the ACA has been able to do. You know, it really gets to the point of like Biden has to show people what he has accomplished, because when you look at the polls, it's just not resonating uh, across America of what Biden has actually done. Now, I want to talk about debates uh, and to start one that is not actually between competing candidates. Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, faced off on Thursday in a debate against the Democratic governor of California, Gavin Newsom. I don't like the way you demean people. I don't like the way you demean the LGBTQ community. I don't like the way you demean and humiliate people you disagree with, Ron. You have the freedom to defecate in public in California. You have the freedom to pitch a tent on Sunset Boulevard. You have the freedom to create a homeless encampment under a freeway and even light it on fire. You have the, the freedom to uh, have an open-air drug market and use drugs. A feisty and in many ways unusual debate, given that uh, Newsom is not running for president. DeSantis is, of course. Uh, with DeSantis's poll numbers down for the GOP nomination and, and Newsom not seeking election next year, Jordan, why were they doing this? What was this about? 
Well, it really seemed like a sideshow, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, just looking at the coverage, watching it, you know, it seemed like this was almost a preview of a 2028 presidential debate rather than one that should be occurring this year. In fact, you know, you can, whether you, you know, agree with Ron DeSantis or Gavin Newsom, you know, all the content, you're probably going to sort of go into your camps. But one line from uh, Gavin Newsom, I thought, broke through at the toward the beginning when he said, "You know, one thing we have in common is neither of us is going to be the 2024 uh, presidential nominee for our party." So uh, it, it seemed like yeah, it was a pretty sick burn, right? But it, it did seem like uh, a chance, you know, for. Ron DeSantis to try and get some juice uh, since he's really been struggling to gain traction and for uh, Gavin Newsom to boost his national profile ahead of a possible presidential run in the future. Libby, what did either of them stand to gain or lose from from doing this in terms of their potential presidential ambitions? Yeah, I mean, for Gavin Newsom, there's so much less on the line, right? This is a chance to have the limelight and to prove that he can be a good surrogate for Joe Biden, not a competitor to him. You know, Sarah, after the second Republican debate that was held in California, uh, the Democrat who was doing laps around the spin room, who my colleagues were talking to, was Governor Gavin Newsom. And he was there to laugh off attacks, relish the limelight, and do that job of being a surrogate, but also position himself as a party leader. And when I stuck around Fox News that night to watch Sean Hannity, who my moderated this debate, interview Gavin Newsom. Hannity loved it. He loved the fact that they could mix it up. He loved the attention. He loved the foil. So this was also about Hannity trying to claim some, you know, some airtime on Fox and get some notice. Uh, DeSantis, what does he have to gain? Well, he needs the airtime more than anyone else because he is falling in the polls. So he's trying to show that he can, you know, be presidential. He can go one-on-one against a Democrat. The question is, does anybody care? Is anybody really listening when he's not leading in the polls? To me, it just felt like another reminder that both parties have such senior, you know, likely nominees and and everybody in both parties is thinking about four years from now. Um, Speaking of debates, the Commission on Presidential Debates announced dates and locations for the general election uh, debates to take place next year in September and October. But given that the presumptive GOP nominee has not bothered showing up to any of the primary debates, Benji, I wonder what do you think is going to happen? Well, this is a very uh, complicated situation right here. As you mentioned, yes, uh, Donald Trump has not showed up to the Republican primary debates, and they've been extremely satisfied with that, how that has worked out. You know, it's they have not been extremely highly rated affairs, partly as a result. His candidate, his rivals have not gotten a lot of traction. All good. General election, another story. <laughs> Republicans are very invested in this idea that President Biden is too old, that he, that he isn't up to snuff anymore, that he'll wilt in a debate. A lot of them would love to see Trump debate Biden. In fact, one of the arguments for Trump showing up, uh, that, that Trump should show up at the primary debates, is that uh, by boycotting them, he will give Biden carte blanche to do the same in a general election. Now, Adding to the confusion here, the RNC has actually withdrawn from the Commission on Presidential Debates, which they've alleged is biased in the past. Trump has also criticized them. So it's not clear they would even agree to these sanctioned debates in the first place either. So genuinely, I have no idea where this ends up, except to say there will be a lot of pressure on both of them to debate uh, come next year. It'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out. Well, this week, Merriam-Webster announced its word of the year – We will reveal what that is, but not until after a short break. So stay with us. We'll be back with more in just a moment. 
On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Friends and family gathered in Georgia this week to remember former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Here's her grandson, Jason Carter, speaking at her memorial service, attended by several other First Ladies. Thank you all for coming and acknowledging this remarkable sisterhood that you share with my grandmother. And thank you all for your leadership that you provided for our country and the world. Secretary Clinton and Dr. Biden, we also welcome your lovely husbands. Her husband, Jimmy Carter, attended both the memorial service and a private funeral earlier this week. The former president is 99 and in hospice care. They were married for 77 years. Amazing. Rosalind Carter was 96 years old. So about that announcement we promised from Merriam-Webster on their word of the year, well, the word is authentic. According to the company, authentic saw a substantial increase in searches thanks to conversations about AI, celebrity culture, and identity. Now, uh, to our panel, I think you had some of your own ideas. I'll start with you, Libby. What's your word of the year if you've got one? Well, authentic has always been my jam, so thank you, Merriam-Webster. I feel seen. But I'm going to go with dead. Now, this is not to be confused with dead, D-E-A-D. This is D-E-D, dead, as in I'm dead. It's like dead plus, and it's something that all my Gen Z nieces and nephews and colleagues are saying. And there you go. That's my word of the year. Benji, how about you? I'm going to go with the word privilege, though, again, not the way you think it is used often. Our reporter, Kadia Goba, has a great story on privileged revolution resolutions in the House, which have allowed individual members to force votes on lots of things. The George Santos expulsion vote today was privileged. The motion to vacate that ousted Kevin McCarthy as speaker, that was a privileged re- resolution. It's really changed how the House operates this year, and I, thus you're seeing it in news stories a lot. Okay, and Jordan, how about you? You know, I'll go with uh, octogenarian. Uh, I'll go with that one. Uh, I I cover the White House. This this thread about Biden's age is going to be a story uh, going into next year. And uh, just as a reminder, Donald Trump is getting up there, too. You know, he's only a few years away for being an octogenarian. So, uh, you know, that'll be a word that's thrown around a lot uh, at the end of this year and heading into next. 
Mine is going to be intense, I think, for a whole bunch of reasons, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, Kathy emails us. Her word of the year is unprecedented. Newscasters in particular love this word in 2023, I think we can say. We have some news, Justin, this morning from a federal appeals court that's ruled that people can sue for financial damages related to the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. That decision is expected to be appealed. Speaking of elections, election conspiracies are still going strong. This month, several Republican election board members in Metro Atlanta voted against certifying the 2023 election results. They did not have a majority, so those results were certified anyway. But things just got serious for two election officials in Arizona. This week, a grand jury charged uh, County Supervisor Peggy Judd and another Tom Crosby with interference with an election officer and with conspiracy. Both Judd and Crosby, who are both Republicans, Republicans voted to delay certifying their county's midterm election results last year. Libby, why did these two vote to delay certification? Yeah, and in case it flew under the radar, midterm is the word you used. We're not talking about 2020. We're talking about the 2022 election. Um, Correct. So this is an ongoing issue, right? Now, they are suffering some pretty uh, – they're facing, rather, some significant uh, penalties. Um, but what they were doing is they sought delays uh, by requesting hand counts of ballots, and they raised questions about whether county voting machines were properly certified. That came even though they got legal advice that such delays would be illegal. Um, Benji, we noticed, we mentioned that a group of Georgia officials similarly voted not to certify the election this month. What do these charges in Arizona mean for others who might refuse to certify results? Well, it's yet another signal that you are open to legal liability. I mean, this is the system sort of reasserting itself and trying to avoid a repeat of what happened in 2020, where because of this prevalence of election conspiracies, because of Trump's refusal to concede, people weren't just, you know, sweating vote counts. They were sweating how, you know, one conspiracy-addled local official might, you know, decide on a vote and whether that would spawn a bunch of court cases and delays. Uh, so similarly in Georgia, you mentioned, in addition to the, in that case, of course, this is at the center of the RICO case against President Trump and others, you know, efforts to cast fake elect, fake elect, uh, to uh, certify fake electors or other ways to undermine the vote counts in 2020 there. Uh, the idea now that even if you're you're an elected official, you face some liability, uh, th- that's, that's a pretty big change or not so much a change just as, you know, an uh, enforcement, a change that you now know this is something that people will be looking to prosecute. And, you know, as uh, Libby mentioned, Jordan, we're three years past the 2020 election. We're still talking about this. This seems to still be happening. Why are these election conspiracies still apparently going strong? Well, Sarah, look who's at the top of the ticket for the Republicans. It's the foremost election conspiracy theorist in the country, Donald Trump. And he has a very loyal and wide base of support in this country. And he's continuing to say things like, don't worry about voting in 2024. You don't have to vote. Uh, still repeating the falsehood that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen from him. And so as long as that's the case, uh, you're going to see these conspiracy theories abound. And you know, it's obviously a concerning development for 2020 
for as well. Uh, you, you, we just cited all these examples that occurred during the midterms. Uh, you could imagine a scenario where in states across the country, you, you could see this kind of thing on steroids where you know, it, it, it won't even require uh, pressure from Donald Trump. You could have pro-Trump uh, election officials in certain states uh, trying to just voluntarily do his bidding to try to impress him by trying to hold, holding up the certification of votes, trying to slow counts, etc. So you could see a lot of widespread chaos playing out in that kind of scenario. I want to talk about uh, another issue, a separate issue that could have an impact on future elections. Georgia is one of a few states whose redrawn congressional maps violated the Voting Rights Act. Now they're working on new ones after a U.S. district judge ruled those maps were illegal. Libby, what exactly did the judge say was wrong with Georgia's old maps? Mm, Well, to violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, the judge said that black voters in Georgia have suffered significant harm and those maps cannot be used. They have to be redrawn. Uh, This is a win for voting rights activists because they had argued that the state's maps really diluted the power of black voters in Georgia. Um, And in fact, Democrats lost a House seat uh, last year after Republican lawmakers had redrawn those maps. And Jordan, how might those maps look different going forward? Well, the uh, the Georgia legislature is going to be responsible for uh, drawing those maps again. And uh, what the judge has said is that he wants you know, majority, an additional uh, majority black congressional district and several more uh, majority black state legislature uh, districts as well. And so uh, they'll have to go back through that process. The judge will have to approve it. And so uh, you know, we saw an example in neighboring Alabama where uh, this kind of thing happened. The uh, judge was not happy with the second result, and a special master was appointed to draw the maps uh, for the legislature. So, uh, you know, if if this really becomes an impasse, uh, there might there could be special steps taken to ensure the judge's orders are carried out. But obviously, this has big implications for you know the, the balance of power in Congress, where you know Republicans' uh, majority is very thin, and so you know even though Georgia, you know, Republican state, I know Donald, uh, Joe Biden won there, but at the state level it is, uh, there could be really big implications. Meanwhile, Benji, a federal appeals court decision last week is setting up another fight over voting rights at the U.S. Supreme Court. Remind us what that case is about. Where does it stand? Uh, The Supreme Court has been, you know, digging into a variety of voting rights questions throughout this. Of course, there was the Alabama decision earlier, which is a big win that preceded these court decisions uh, that are now affecting uh, Georgia and likely other states as well. But there's going to be continued challenges uh, over the law in other directions as well. So you can expect the court to have to weigh in repeatedly on this uh, while states figure out what exactly they mean. Lead pipes are bad. We've known this for a while. They pollute our drinking water. They harm children's developing brains in particular, yet there are still millions of lead pipes across the U.S. The Biden administration wants to change that. On Thursday, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed a new rule effectively requiring all remaining lead pipes to be removed and mostly replaced. Big question, Libby, how much is this going to cost? Yeah, well, the EPA is estimating it could cost $20 billion to $30 billion over the course of a decade. Um, And the way this is structured, the nation's utilities, and so likely ratepayers would have to absorb a lot of that cost. But it's important to point out that $15 billion is available from that 2021 infrastructure law. And this is another example of how President Biden needs to be telling people what he's accomplished. You know, when I talk to people who are 
lukewarm or a little bit just blasé about his presidency, this is an example of the kind of thing they don't know about. Uh, and so this is a, a it's a, it's one of those things that's been needed to, it needs to have been done for a very long time. And so now the Biden administration is saying, we have the momentum, we have some of the money, let's move forward with it to protect children and to protect Americans drinking water. I'll go back to you quickly for a follow-up question, Libby. Aside from some of that federal money that may be available, I mean, who would pay for this? A lot of this wouldn't fall on on local or state governments. Right. This is about ratepayers, people who pay utility bills. And so utilities are going to pass that cost along to the people who get, get their electricity and get their utilities, get their water bills. And so um, that's you know going to be a double-edged sword. But the Biden administration is trying to promote it as something that needs to be done. Benji, how realistic is this EPA proposal to remove lead pipes all over the country? Well, it's certainly been a major goal of the administration. They're hoping that they can uh, get this through. It dovetails with other efforts that they've been making. You know, a major part of the bipartisan infrastructure law that they've especially sold to Democrats was an incredibly large fund to remove lead pipes. You know, so this obviously is part of that effort as well. It's a major priority. And Jordan, aside from the costs that Libby was discussing, I mean, what else might be in the way of this actually happening? Do politics come in here? Certainly, there's politics. Uh, you know, as we're seeing, something uh, as you know, bipartisan as Israel aid can get uh, sucked up in, in bigger debates. And so uh, you know, t- you're talking about a pot of $20, $30 billion. There's always going to be uh, a big debate around that. And there's also uh, you know, the fight between uh, states and cities for who gets this money, you know, wh- which areas get prioritized. And, and so uh, you know, it, it's not as simple as you know, this is a uh, – this is a really serious problem and needs immediate action. As we've seen uh, over the past few years, uh, these things can run into unexpected roadblocks. In our final few minutes, I want to talk about Henry Kissinger. He died on Wednesday at 100 years old. The former U.S. Secretary of State during both the Nixon and Ford administrations leaves behind a complicated legacy. Kissinger was a polarizing figure to some, one of our greatest statesmen. To others, he was a criminal and a carpet bomber. I want to ask each of you how you would assess Kissinger's impact on politics here and overseas. And uh, Benji, I'll start with you. Well, in the long-running debate that was relevant in the Cold War, later in the War on Terror, now in a variety of, of contexts of how American presidents uh, and, and diplomats balance American uh, interests and American values and human rights, Kissinger represented the avatar of the furthest pole towards American interests and away from human rights. And as a result, he's going to be debated and highlighted and often reviled for many years to come, I feel. Also because he was such a great intellectual presence who, you know, literally wrote the textbooks on some of this stuff. You know, you are debating his ideas when you are debating these these tensions. Libby, your thoughts on the passing of Henry Kissinger? Hmm. Well, my colleague, Ashan Thoreau, who's a columnist, really dug into Kissinger's legacy in South Asia and other parts of the world and how they have a very different uh, reflection on his legacy. And my colleagues who've been reporting globally have just been talking to you know, longtime foreign correspondents and leaders who've said that this is a man who 
left a lot of blood. And, uh, and in his mission to sort of eradicate, you know, uh, communism and deal with the Cold War, um, there, there is a trail of carnage that they are also reflecting on, which has to be brought up at this time of, of, uh, of, of all of the sort of the plaudits and the memories of how Henry Kissinger's hundred years really spanned this important century of America and the globe. And Jordan, I'll let you wrap it up with your thoughts on, on Henry Kissinger's le- legacy, good or bad. I can't stop thinking about how uh, a lot of the issues that Henry Kissinger grappled with we're still grappling with today, and uh, the U.S.'s reaction to it is a, a direct byproduct of it. You know, we see, you know, backlash toward you know a detente with Russia, detente toward China, and, and, and these are all things that Henry Kissinger pursued as uh, as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, and also again just the you know, the broader question of how. Involved should the U.S. be in in you know meddling in other countries' affairs? You know we, we do see a strong isolationist streak in this country, and I can't help but think that you know, the the horrible after effects of some of Henry Kissinger's policies uh, help contribute to that. My thanks this week to our panel. Libby Casey is senior news anchor at the Washington Post. Benji Sarlin is Washington bureau chief for Semaphore, and Jordan Fabian is the White House correspondent for Bloomberg. So good to have all of you. Thank you so much for your time. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup. Emotional scenes in Israel as another group of Israeli hostages are released by Hamas this week. And in the West Bank, a Palestinian mother tells her daughter, newly released from an Israeli prison, to be strong. But as the fighting resumes in Gaza, what diplomatic efforts are underway? And later, we'll get more on a foiled plot to kill a sick activist in the U.S. And why are the Parthenon marbles escalating a diplomatic spat between the leaders of Greece and the United Kingdom? It may seem alien to him, but my view is when people make commitments, they should keep them. All that and more after this short break. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline... We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. Let's meet our guests. Indira Lakshmanan is Global Enterprise Editor at the AP. Indira, always good to have you with us. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. Jack Detch is Pentagon and National Security Reporter for Foreign Policy. Hi, Jack. Good to talk to you. Hey, Sarah. Great to join you. From London, Leila Milana Allen is a special correspondent at the PBS NewsHour. Thanks for being here, Leila. Hi, Sarah. Good to be here. And from Tel Aviv is my colleague, NPR International Correspondent Daniel Estrin. Hi, Daniel. So good to talk with you. Thank you, Sarah. And Daniel, I'll I'll start with you. Egyptian and Qatari negotiators had been pressing for a two-day extension, a new extension, to the pause in fighting between Hamas and Israel. But Israel has resumed the war after the truce expired. What is the latest there? 
Yeah, both sides are blaming each other for the war uh, resuming. And it has to do with disagreements about um, hostages and about the kind of hostages Hamas was supposed to release next. Uh, There have been seven rounds of uh, hostages exchanged for Palestinian prisoners. But in this round that was supposed to happen today, Hamas claimed that it it doesn't have the women and the children left in, in its own control uh, to free, that, that maybe they're being held by other groups inside Gaza, and Hamas, uh, that Israel does not accept that. Um, Hamas was offering some other things. They were offering to release elderly men and female soldiers and captives' bodies, people who had died in captivity. Israel said no. Um, the deal is release women and, and youth. And so Israel said Hamas didn't meet its commitment uh, and – Then uh, shortly before the ceasefire was set to expire this morning at 7 in the morning, Hamas launched rockets at Israel. And so Israel said it was resuming its combat in Gaza. And uh, since then, the Israeli army says it's attacked uh, over 200 sites throughout Gaza. Daniel, are you getting a sense of the reaction there in Israel to this latest development? Yeah, I think the reactions are mixed. I mean, Israel is trying to accomplish seemingly two seemingly opposite things at the same time. Uh, Israel says it wants to eliminate Hamas. But it's also negotiating with Hamas for the release of hostages. And and Israel really hasn't answered the question of what is the priority. They say that both are the priorities and, and the goals of this war. Um, and so when you speak to Israelis, they say, well, yes, uh, we can't live with Hamas in charge in Gaza after what uh, what took place on October 7th, the, the horrific massacres. Um but, you know, the, these hostage releases have kind of proven this rule that freeing hostages can only be done if you talk to Hamas and you give them something in return. And so uh, you really do get a sense from Israelis that they're, they're struggling with this. Um, the, you know, the, and, and it also makes the aims of this war and the final endgame uh, very hard to picture. Indira, what can you tell us about this latest round or maybe the next round of negotiations? What's sort of in play here? Right. Even as um, this this truce broke down, as Daniel has explained, there are still conversations going in the background. Mediators from Qatar's foreign ministry um, are say that talks are still going on with Israelis and Palestinians to try to restore the truce, which, as he said, collapsed. Um, but in the fighting that has just restarted today, there have been reports of up to 100 Palestinians who've been killed in Israeli strikes in the hours since the truce expired. Um, at the same time, we have Jordan's king saying that the war is making threats from climate change even worse in the Gaza Strip. Um, this is, of course, he was speaking at the COP28 climate talks in nearby Dubai. Um, But we do know that the Qataris are in the background trying to continue efforts to bring um, the truce back. And we also know that the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon is worried about the possibility of spillover um, from Israel's war in Gaza into Lebanon. And the U.S. has been continually opposing the idea of um, pressing Palestinians from Gaza into Egypt. So all of those issues are still underway. One of the most interesting things is the Israeli army has published this interactive map in which they've divided the Gaza Strip into hundreds of small zones. It's been criticized as confusing. And, uh, you know, the U.S. has raised a lot of questions about this map as well. And how, how would you stay in these certain areas and who would know where they need to be? 
Now, as we've said, the truce did halt bombing temporarily and allowed some humanitarian aid into Gaza, but there are calls for much more. Most of the Gaza Strip has been utterly destroyed by the Israeli military retaliation against the brutal Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. And just to recap some of the numbers, you know, more than 15,000 Palestinian citizens in Gaza have been killed, according to officials there, um, including, as Indira mentioned, some 100 just today after the truce ended. Uh, Those numbers are from the Gaza Ministry of Health. Around 1,200 Israelis were killed on October 7th. And on Thursday, at least three Israelis were killed and several injured in a shooting in West Jerusalem. Hamas took responsibility for the two gunmen who carried out the attack at a bus stop. The two were then killed by bystanders. Leila, what kind of danger does this incident pose to hopes for another ceasefire? Well, there are several issues around this attack, which happened yesterday morning, as you say, in a bus stop uh, in West Jerusalem on the outskirts. Now, a lot of these attacks, these terror attacks, do happen at bus stops because they are open spaces where people are waiting and are quite defenceless. So early yesterday morning, two gunmen turned up, brothers from East Jerusalem, jumped out of their car, started firing. At least three people are currently dead. A a 24-year-old reportedly pregnant teacher, uh, another woman who was 65, and a man who was in his 70s. There were 13 people also injured, um, and the ambulance services have indicated that there may be more deaths, a couple are still in critical condition. Now, within a minute, those uh, terrorists had been killed. And one of the important things here is the Jerusalem police did respond uh, to take out those those attackers. But one of the people who killed one of the attackers was a civilian, was an everyday Israeli, and who was armed himself. And recently, since the attacks, there has been a drop in... Uh, the restrictions on personal gun ownership and a huge number of people signing up for personal weapons in Israel and undertaking courses to use them because they feel they have to protect themselves. So this situation is likely, firstly, only to escalate that feeling that Israelis want to be armed to protect themselves from attackers. Secondly, of course, we're seeing this is the worst attack Uh, within Israel since the 7th of October, since the war began. And so we're seeing that can still happen. And immediately the National Security Minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, came down and he said, this shows exactly why we cannot have a ceasefire. At this point, the ceasefire was still ongoing, why we can't have a truce. All we can do is eliminate them. We must eliminate them all. And still Hamas is here. Of course, what this does show is that whatever's going on in Gaza and however many Hamas leadership and fighters are being eliminated, that's still very present elsewhere. That that thought and what many people say, of course, is that you can't eliminate Hamas because it's an ideology. Hamas themselves, when they claimed responsibility for this attack, said it was in retaliation for what's been going on, not just in Gaza and the taking of lives of civilians and children, but also in the West Bank and the IDF's response there. So this really demonstrates the tension that continues to push into Israel itself and the fact that people there are still very concerned about being attacked while the war carries on. And Daniel Estrin, I want to go back to you there in Tel Aviv. Over 100 Israeli hostages have been freed by Hamas so far. Officials say 137 remain captive. Israel says it's resuming the war in an effort to end Hamas's 16-year rule of Gaza, but it's facing mounting international pressure. We'll speak more about U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Tel Aviv soon. But what is Israel's war cabinet saying about their plans, Daniel? You know, they're... they're, um they're not saying much, uh, publicly at least. Uh, the, we, we do know that Israeli uh, officials are meeting to discuss plans for what they call the next phase of the war. Uh, Israeli television has quoted anonymously an Israeli official saying, 
that the plan is for some more days of fighting, but that Israel is ready to go back to uh, another ceasefire if Hamas agrees to release more women hostages. Uh, if that happens, then, then Israel is ready to, to release Palestinian prisoners and detainees. Uh, the, the swaps that we've seen so far are women and youth for women and youth. So uh, we could be seeing, uh, um, you know, the, the resumption of, of fighting now. Uh, it's not guaranteed that this is going to last for a long time. Um, Israel could could go back to, to agree to a temporary ceasefire. But uh, Israeli leaders have been very clear that uh, they, they don't intend to, to end the fighting and end the military campaign until they achieve uh, their goals of what they say is to eliminate Hamas and also to re- release all of the hostages. The New York Times reported Thursday that Israeli officials had knowledge of Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago, but that intelligence was dismissed. How is that being received in Israel? Israelis have been hearing a lot of uh, similar reporting in recent weeks uh, about various warnings Israeli soldiers had given their superiors uh, about lax security, about Hamas's attack plans. So it doesn't come as a surprise to Israelis. um, The the line that Israeli officials give is, uh, we're going to have to face questions when the war is over. But uh, this is just one of the many things that are um, roiling Israelis as they are uh, really uh, emotional in a way that they've never been. This was of course, on October 7th, the deadliest day in Israel's history. Jack, last week, Biden, President Biden told reporters that conditioning military aid to Israel was, quote, a worthwhile thought. What have we heard from the White House on that? Well, not much, Sarah, since since those comments. This is kind of a, a boomerang effect that we've seen where President Biden says one thing and the administration's underlings quickly reel it back. So, so what we've heard from inside the administration is that's not really on the table. The administration is a bit in a wait-and-see mode as as Israel uh, continues its push into southern Gaza and the ceasefire expires. Obviously, as you mentioned, now 100 more Palestinians dead, uh, uh, according to the Palestinian numbers, with the bombings in in Khan Yunus this morning. But the administration is in a bit, bit of a pickle because as they watch this closely, as they sort of try and and dictate Israel's tactics, their their care towards the civilian populations, even as they move into more densely packed urban territory. Of course, a lot of the Palestinians who were in northern Gaza have fled to that part of, of southern Gaza as this fighting is taking place. But this would really buck the historical trend if the U.S. were to put conditions on Israeli military aid. We've seen $3.3 billion going to the Israelis in military aid per year since the 1960s, spiking after the 1973 war. So a, a huge change in the historical trend potentially, but you have global political pressure on the Israelis right now and the way they've carried out this war, and of course within the Democratic Party. So the message from Biden is going to be tread lightly. We'll see if they put teeth in that. Daniel, we've been talking about the hostages released by Hamas. Uh, they reported losing weight during their seven weeks in captivity. Many of them said they were held underground and they survived mostly on bread and rice, sleeping on rows of chairs. The Red Cross said it was denied access to the hostages during this time. What else are we hearing by those who've been released by Hamas? Well, the ones who have been released over the last week are not speaking to the media yet. They are speaking to their relatives, and that's how we are hearing bits and pieces of the, their their experiences. And it really is a mix of stories. Uh, some uh, were kept in isolation and then held in, in larger groups of other hostages, and some of the hostages took care of each other. Uh, one was brought to a group and found himself suddenly with his old preschool teacher. 
Um, some children were allowed to draw. Others were not allowed to have pens or pencils, apparently out of a fear that they would secretly communicate with the other hostages. Uh, one young child came out of captivity whispering, and she was told uh, while she was in captivity to, to whisper, not to reveal her location. Um, one child reportedly was made to watch videos of Hamas's killing spree on October 7th. But all in all, uh, most of them, you know, in the videos that we've seen in these tearful uh, reunions when they run and they hug their families uh, after they've been freed, most of them do appear to be in good physical condition. Uh, of course, their mental state is something uh, that <laughs> time will tell. Uh, some of the most explosive claims, which I have not been able to independently verify, but that have been reported in Israeli media, are that uh, the head of Hamas in Gaza met some of some of the captives underground. But I think all in all, it's just it is amazing to consider that the war isn't really officially over and, and nearly half of the hostages are now free. A young woman who was released from prison in Israel, meanwhile, spoke to PBS's Nick Schifrin this week. She says conditions in prison worsened after the October 7th attacks by Hamas. They treated us in a very bad way. They threatened us that they would rape us. They prevent us from having food and water. After the 7th of October, we lost everything. We lost our rights. We lost our privacy. They hit us, kicked us every day for 49 days. PBS NewsHour reports that Israel denies mistreating prisoners. Uh, Indira, as part of the ceasefire earlier this week, Israeli officials released 240 Palestinian prisoners, uh, including someone we just heard about. Uh, what conditions have they been reporting? Yeah, you heard from that interview that they've been reporting terrible conditions um, under Israeli detention, which the Israelis have vehemently denied. What's been interesting to me watching all this is that the release of Palestinians, some of whom were just ordinary civilians, some of whom were, you know, in detention versus others who were prisoners, um, has been, you know, greeted with joy in the Palestinian territories. And, you know, strangely, in an effect that I'm sure Israel would not want, Hamas is getting sort of boomerang popularity from this among Palestinians who are crediting Hamas for allowing their relatives and loved ones to be released. So it's a it's a really complicated um, situation, all of this. Um, you know, it's it's very good for people to be released, period. But the the fact that it is hardening positions on both sides, um, you know, is not a positive. And it, you know, sort of brings up the larger question about who is going to rule Palestinian authorities. And we, you know, have seen the United States pressuring that they still want um, a united uh, two-state solution with united Palestinian territories and that um, they are in agreement with Israel that Hamas must no longer rule over any Palestinian territory. Um, but the question is, you know, who is going to rule? The United States has been pressing for the Palestinian Authority to do so, but we know that Fatah, Mahmoud Abbas's party, although Mahmoud Abbas is recognized internationally as the president of the Palestinian Authority and the leader of Fatah and gets international 
international funding from the UN and others, he's not popular among the Palestinian people. And this Hamas attacks, you know, has not helped his popularity either, because he and his party are seen by many Palestinians as having been too soft on Israel, too conciliatory, not protesting enough about um, settler, you know, Israeli settlements, not protesting enough about the conditions for Palestinians being held in Israeli detention, um, which is, you know, where this whole conversation began. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on his third trip to the region since October 7th has stepped up calls for Israel to comply with international law and spare civilians as it wages its war against Hamas in Gaza. Here he is speaking on Thursday before the fighting resumed on Friday morning. In my meetings today with the prime minister and senior Israeli officials, I made clear that before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians. But Israel has the most sophisticated, one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world. It is capable of neutralizing the threat posed by Hamas while minimizing harm to innocent men, women, and children. Daniel, Blinken said the U.S. remains committed to supporting Israel's right to self-defense. What did he achieve during his visit with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, you mentioned his three trips to Israel since the October 7th attacks. And, and on each of those trips, Blinken has come with a main demand. You know, The first trip, he was asking for Israel to allow in more humanitarian aid in to, into Gaza. In fact, any humanitarian aid at all. Um, Israel's initial offer was just to allow just a few trucks of aid into Gaza a day. And uh, the U.S., with its negotiations, it, that ended up being about 200 trucks of, of food and, and, and fuel and various different humanitarian uh, medicines, other aid, uh, lots of, of aid getting in, especially during the ceasefire. The second trip that Blinken took was, uh, he, his main demand was to ask for a humanitarian pause in the fighting to allow for, for more aid to get in and to get hostages out. And that's exactly what we've seen over the last seven days. But yesterday when Blinken was here, his main demand, as, as we just heard him say uh, very publicly, was to make sure Israel has a plan for South Gaza. Uh, Israel has ordered hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to, to evacuate northern Gaza, the most populated area of Gaza, including Gaza City. Uh, that's where Israeli soldiers are, are, are occupying Gaza and have hit Gaza hard. Uh, the problem is that you know, in, in, during this war, many Palestinians who, who fled to South Gaza have been killed there, even though Israel said that that's where they would find more safety. Uh, and so we heard Blinken there say that he needs clearly defined safe zones. He's asking Israel for that. So, so uh, we don't see the kind of catastrophic death tolls that we saw in the first uh, weeks of the war. Um, as Indira said, Israel has published uh, a, an interactive map online with neighborhoods numbered for, for evacuation, uh, a very confusing map to navigate on your phone or on the, uh, you know, let alone if you're in Gaza with limited internet connectivity. The Israeli army told me today they haven't used this map yet. And already today there have been children and multiple members of the same families killed in Israeli strikes. Um, NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, himself saw the bodies of, of children uh, in an airstrike met grieving a grieving mother. Uh, and so here we are, uh, the second phase of the war, uh, this, this current phase with, with fighting again in South Gaza and, uh, and without uh, any really clear plan of how uh, Palestinian civilians can find safety. 
Daniel Estrin, thank you so much for your reporting from Israel. Uh, I know your time is up with us, but but thank you for taking the time to speak with us. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin joining us from Tel Aviv. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Staying with us, we have Indira Lakshmanan from the Associated Press, Foreign Policy's Jack Detch, and Leila Molana Allen from the PBS NewsHour. Uh Leila, I want to ask you, what is your sense of how much these trips by Secretary Blinken are moving the needle, if at all? I think, as you heard there from Daniel, you know, that pressure certainly from the U.S. from these trips has made some difference, but it's pushing the needle. It's not moving the needle on the overall intention of the Israeli government, of the Israeli military, which continues to be that they will do essentially what they like in Gaza. They will continue these attacks. Now, there's quite a lot of frustration amongst IDF leadership about the fact that they feel at the beginning they were asked by Biden, they were asked by Blinken to slow things down a bit, to take things a bit slower. We saw this sort of staged ground invasion rather than one big push. And they feel that that has meant that the dial of public opinion has started to swing against them as more and more has come out about how many Palestinian civilians are being killed, the horrific conditions in which they're living, and they haven't been able to achieve their overall goals as fast as they want to as public opinion is changing. Now, when Blinken visited the other day, in private meetings, it's been reported by multiple sources that the the IDF leadership was saying, and Netanyahu as well, the prime minister, was saying, we will keep fighting for weeks, for months. The public is behind us for as long as we need to secure this goal. And Blinken pushed back and said, I don't think you've got maybe even not weeks for of public opinion, international public opinion and US support to continue Mm. fighting at this level. Now, of course, both Blinken and Biden have been calling for a different approach to this push into the South. Now, the Israeli military is saying, in fact, they think that the Hamas leadership is mostly in the South around Khan Yunus, the biggest city there. The Americans pushing back and saying, we cannot see the same loss of life, the same living conditions. But realistically, 1.7 million people are displaced within Gaza. Half of Gaza is now completely flattened. I've been in Mm. there. It is just rubble. There's nowhere for people to live. There's nowhere for people to survive. These humanitarian zones aren't functioning. Even the medical aid that was gone in, in the last week, doctors in Gaza today were saying that all the medical aid that has come in within the last week Uh, during this pause in fighting is only enough to keep the three hospitals that are still functioning going for one day. Patients are being treated on the floor of hospitals already by 4pm local time. As we've heard, more than 200 Gazans had been killed today, many more injured already. It really is a complete re-escalation of this conflict and many humanitarian organisations coming out today and saying, look, this is not None of this pause has wound down any threat to people inside Gaza. This is simply a staving off of humanitarian catastrophe, and that will continue. And what we're seeing is all this pressure from America and other leaders still really only managing to slightly shift the way in which things are done, not the reality, which is a war inside a blockaded area where civilians cannot flee and the Israelis absolutely determined to finish the job. Now, Secretary Blinken also met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas on Thursday. Not everyone welcomed that visit. Here's Jamal Juma, a Palestinian protester in Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. We are standing here as a Palestinian people, as a civil society and all the Palestinians to send a very strong message to Blinken and also to the, to the Palestinian president and the, the al-Muqata'a that Blinken is not welcome here in Palestine. He's, he's a war criminal. He's participated in the genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. 
Indira, we've talked before about the fact that the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority President Abbas is wildly unpopular. First of all, what do we know about what he and Blinken discussed? And what has the U.S. said about what, how they may you know, envision his role after this conflict? What we know is that the U.S. is strongly behind, um, let's say, the, you know, the rule of unified Palestinian territories by a Palestinian authority. The problem is that at the same time that they are supporting this, um, as we've discussed, the, the, the PA and the Fatah party run by Mahmoud Abbas are not popular, are at some all-time lows of popularity. And at the same time, um, you know, the economy is in a terrible condition. Um, and the Palestinian Authority government officials have not been paid. Um, so there are all sorts of, you know, problems right now that would, you know, point towards a breakdown, actually, of the Palestinian Authority rather than a bolstering of it. You know, I think this sort of brings us to the larger question, which was what is the future of a two-state solution? And right. the U.S. has, you know, under multiple administrations, Democrats and Republicans, been supportive of a two-state solution. And Biden has said and Blinken have said that they continue to support a two-state solution. We don't see a lot of um, or any, I should say, momentum under the current Netanyahu government in Israel towards actually making a two-state solution a reality. But I'm struck by how it's playing out in U.S. politics as just an example, there was um, last, well, in October, there was a survey of Arab Americans that found that only 17% of them were planning to vote for Biden, which was down from 35% in April and almost 60% in 2020. Um, so this is striking how more Arab Americans are now identifying as Republicans. So Biden's handling of this matter, um, of this whole situation has not been popular. And it's going to potentially come home to roost in the 20. 24 election. Let's turn now to COP28, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. The event kicked off in Dubai on Thursday with some 70,000 people in attendance. The conference brings together world leaders, scientists, and environmental advocates to strategize on global climate policy. Leila, I'll start with you on this. Who is going to be at COP28 this year? So several significant world leaders are going to COP28 this year and, and that's, you know, very pleasing for people who've organised it. We've got Macron, we've got leader, lots of, importantly, lots of leaders from South Asia, which is one of the areas most affected. But who isn't there is really what everyone is talking about. There was no American leadership going. It was just John Kerry, uh, who is the climate envoy, who was going to go. Now VP Kamala Harris is going because there was pushback on the fact that there was no American representation. Of course, Chinese leader uh, Xi Jinping is also not going even though there was that meeting with Biden in November where they agreed that they would try and push forward on some climate targets. So, And the other big story was that Pope Francis was supposed to go, which was the first time that a pontiff from uh, the Vatican was going to attend. That was supposed to be part of his big push for climate justice as part of what he sees as international justice. He's unfortunately now not able to attend either because of ill health. So there is certainly a smaller number of big hitters who are going. The British Prime Minister is going to, he is trying to make... Uh, fossil fuels and the Paris Agreement, a big part of his platform at the moment internationally and saying that, that the Brits have been leaders on climate change. Now, the big things that people are pushing for at this conference, at this summit, are two issues. One is about reining in 
fossil fuels and the use of fossil fuels. And of course, it's very controversial that this is happening in Dubai because the UAE is such a huge user of fossil fuels, which contribute to 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions. The second issue is talking about climate justice and financing for nations that are supposed to, that are going to suffer the most, uh, which of course are mostly third world developing nations who are going to suffer the most from the initial impacts of climate change that we are starting to see. This of course comes after a year of the hottest summer on record, of incredibly devastating floods in places like Libya, of huge fires across the world, especially across Europe that we saw this summer and across North America. So it's really, really a tense time and change needs to be made. And the one other big thing that's happening at this summit is that this is the first time that countries are actually going to be held to account for their progress on their agreement, uh, on their progress with the Paris Agreement. And one of the things that we're seeing is that the the deal here is that we're supposed to be achieving dropping beneath a 1.5 Celsius increase in temperature. We are nowhere near that. None of the countries are anywhere near their goals on that. So there's going to be quite a lot of people being held to account. But of course, this is hugely overshadowed by the conflict going on in the Middle East and Israeli leadership is not attending at all this year. Now, on its first day, COP28 established a climate loss and damage fund for countries facing climate-related disasters. This was an unresolved issue from the last COP. Jack, how significant is this? This is a big step, but it's sort of a drop in, in the bucket of an ocean of need. We've seen the UAE already chip in $100 million. The Germans say they're taking out $100 million for this fund that will launch next year and will really help address climate disasters that are taking place um, from non-emitting countries. So it's a nice feel-good moment. It, it certainly does address a need. But, but when you look at, at just, again, that ocean of need, the UN says – $387 billion is needed annually to address climate change. Uh, UN countries have, have never gotten even close to that. The, the Green Climate Fund that was set up in the 2009 Copenhagen summit uh, has never even gotten to the $100 billion target that they've set out. So this is going to be very difficult to get beyond sort of this, this feel-good moment to actually the brass tacks of funding this need. Now, the conference, of course, has not been without controversy. The UAE allegedly planned to use its role as a COP28 host as an opportunity to strike oil and gas deals. That's according to leaked documents obtained by independent journalists at the Center for Climate Reporting working alongside the BBC. Leila, how has the UAE responded to these claims? The UAE has responded by saying this is absolutely untrue. Uh, the president of COP28, Sultan al-Jabra, said that the allegations are false. None of this is accurate. The BBC has responded saying we looked very clearly into these and we have the documents. They have documents showing several things. Firstly, that there are talking points for approaching at least 17 countries quite specifically offering deals with ADNOC, which is the UAE's um, oil and gas um, umbrella of offering deals on how they can continue to use and expand the use of fossil fuels with those countries, which obviously goes directly against the intentions of COP. And secondly, um, which is slightly more less controversial and more negotiable, um, is the approach that they wanted to make to many people about engaging with the international renewables arm as well and how they could work. But that's still trying to make business deals at a conference which is very clearly not uh, for that intention. Now, the UAE leadership have said they haven't denied that they did intend to try and make business proposals, but they have said that absolutely they were not trying to increase the use of fossil fuels and offer engagement over fossil fuels with these countries, which the doctor 
documents show quite clearly that they were. And the other issue here is that Sultan al Jaber, who is running COP28, is the head of ADNOC, the uh, the UAE's oil and gas arm. So he himself is a man who promotes the use of fossil fuels every day and yet is running this conference that its main aim is to try and eliminate the use of fossil fuels. So it's all very controversial there. There was a lot of concern always about this being held in Dubai, particularly given the UAE's stance on fossil fuels, on the international climate goals, and these do seem to be coming to fruition now. And this is you know, in- incredibly unpopular among a lot of, among a lot of the people who are, are um, attending now. And it's unclear as yet whether any of these approaches were actually made, because of course the documents were leaked right at the beginning of the conference. Let's turn now to an incredible rescue story in India. On Tuesday, 41 construction workers who were stuck in a collapsed tunnel 300 feet underground in the Himalayan mountains were finally rescued. They were trapped for more than 17 days after the tunnel caved in on November 12th. Here's what a member of the rescue team said. Their condition is first class and absolutely fine, just like yours or mine. There's no tension about their health. The event was also celebrated by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who posted this on the social media platform X. Quote, I want to say to the friends who were trapped in the tunnel that your courage and patience is inspiring everyone. Indira, how did this play out? How were rescuers finally able to reach those who were trapped? Yeah, this is a a fantastic, rare, feel-good story in the realm of international headlines this week. So I'm happy to talk about it. I did want to just make um, one point wrapping up what Layla was talking about on COP28, which is to draw attention to the work by my colleagues at AP who did an analysis finding that there were some 400 people in the fossil fuel industry who were participating in climate negotiations wearing badges, um, claiming they were with indigenous organizations of the Amazon or the climate registry. So in truth, um, groups associated with the fossil fuel industry are, according to our analysis, the third largest group at all of the climate talks, which is alarming in itself, given that it's meant to be a different purpose. On this Mm. Indian rescue, what a fascinating story. There was a landslide that trapped these mining workers on November 12th. There was a portion of this um, basically three-mile-long tunnel that they were building in the state of Uttarakhand that collapsed 200 meters from the entrance. Um, These miners were able to survive on food and oxygen that was supplied through these narrow steel pipes. And one of the things that was striking about this um, dramatic rescue was that they were having to take – the rescuers were having to manually dig through rocks and debris after the drilling machine broke down um, because of the mountainous terrain, and they had to bore through 154 feet deep um, to get these re- to get these trapped workers out, and they were working even by hand. Um, so all of that drilling finally and digging came to fruition, and all of the miners um, did survive, which was a really happy outcome. Um, it does also draw attention, though, to the plight of migrant laborers from across India, because uh, many of the people in this mine and many of the people in some of the most dangerous industries in India are, in fact, um, the poorest of the poor migrant laborers who travel from far across the country to get work wherever they can.
Now, the leaders of Britain and Greece are in a dispute over the Parthenon sculptures. The two countries are trading blame this week after a meeting was canceled between the Greek prime minister and the prime minister of Britain. Greece has been calling for the return of all the sculptures, also known as the Elgin marbles, for decades. Some are currently housed at the British Museum and have been since they were removed from the Parthenon in 1806. Greece's prime minister has compared this separation to cutting the Mona Lisa in half. Leila, what do we know about this canceled meeting and what each side is saying that led to the cancellation? So this meeting was supposed to happen on Monday and Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who is the Prime Minister of Greece, uh, was pushing very hard in advance of this meeting, saying that the only possible outcome for this meeting is that the marbles are returned to Athens. Now, this has been a very long-running debate. The Elgin marbles are a series of marbles that were taken at the beginning of the 19th century by Lord Elgin during the Ottoman occupation, uh, during the Ottoman Empire um, at the time, and were brought back slowly and then, very controversially, not given, but as things were at the time, sold to the British Museum. So these are antiquities that were illegally removed by a British political presence and were then sold. Now, that's something that is now, this to this day, completely illegal. For many years, Greece has maintained that they have now built the Parthenon Museum, there is a safe place for these marbles to be, and the British government, and particularly the Tory party, the Conservative party who are currently in government, are pushing very hard for keeping these marbles, which are kind of the flagship for all seized antiquities that the Brits have and saying that they have to protect the British Museum, that they have to maintain uh, the integrity of its collections. Now, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, was supposed to meet with Mr. Takis at the beginning of the week. It's unclear why the meeting was pushed. They did then offer a meeting with Oliver Dowden instead, who is a deputy, and Mr. Takis said, no, that's disrespectful. That's not, you know, this is a long-planned meeting and you're showing even more disrespect to our country. The Brits say that's unfortunate, but unfortunately Sunak just wasn't available. Now, it's unclear whether they decided to cancel the meeting because they felt that it wasn't going to look good for them to have to directly say, no, you will never get these back. And Mr. Takis was pushing so hard for that, or whether, in fact, it was to do with the many other things that Sunak does have on his plate this week, with the conflict in the Middle East, with going, with going to the COP28 conference, um, you know, all of these various things that he's trying to deal with. But certainly Mr. Takis has gone on British television as well as Greek television saying that he's furious, that he feels disrespectful, And this is just another example of the Brits holding on to things that they have stolen. Now, the big issue here is this this isn't about the marbles. This is about the fact that Brits here who are on the side of keeping these antiquities see this as a slippery slope. There was a huge return of antiquities from many decades brought back to Iraq this year from the British Museum and other British institutions that were restored. And that's carved a big hole in the British Museum collections. Now, that was a long-running negotiation, and it was part of the British government having been involved in the restoration of Iraqi um, political systems and democracy. It was part of a deal they made. But they feel that if they keep saying yes to these sorts of things, they will soon lose all their collections. Of course, many people who say this is a legacy of British imperialism, theft Mm -hmm. from local peoples, and that this has to be the start of what must be a return of all of these items. Jack, Greece obviously does not recognize the British Museum as the owner of these sculptures. Britain has a law saying the museum can't dispose of items in its collection. So where does this conversation go from here? Well, I mean, as as Layla said, it's it's sort of at an impasse. Obviously, the the Brits do see this as as a slippery slope, something they don't want to give in on. 
Um, but Greece, of course, sees this as a key part of uh, the key part of their historical heritage. I mean, in in the capital of their country, so it's hard to see this being the final chapter. Uh, certainly, Sunak is is going to have to answer for this. But there's just so much on the plate for the Brits, and not to mention, uh, and they're just in such a testy political time, being so far down in the polls, the the Tories uh, against the opposition. So it's difficult to see how they concede and, and how they cave uh, at this point on the political spectrum. Also this week, the Justice Department arrested an Indian man who allegedly plotted to murder a Sikh activist in New York. According to federal prosecutors, Nikhil Gupta, an Indian national, was recruited by an Indian government employee for the failed murder-for-hire plot. The Associated Press identified the victim as Sikh activist Gurpatawan Singh Panoon, who is considered a terrorist by the Indian government. Panoon is an advocate for the movement to create an independent Sikh state separate from India. And Jack, I'll go back to you for this. What do we know about the accused Nikhil Gupta? Well, we know that that he's an Indian national who arranged this murder for hire scheme for a hundred thousand um, dollars to to kill this this Sikh activist. The only problem was when he arranged this murder for hire scheme, uh, he actually contacted somebody who was working for the U.S. government. Well, we know he's now been arrested in the Czech Republic. We we don't know how much. Uh, about where he's being detained or, or, or for how long. He had previously mm-hmm. bragged about, to Indian officials, according to the indictment, about his connections to international drug traffickers and weapons traffickers. Uh, so the Indian government's being very quiet about this while, while Biden seems to be going public ab- about this. So a lot of teeth gnashing going to be taking place. Big thank you to our panelists this hour. Indira Lakshmanan is Global Enterprise Editor at the AP. Jack Detch is Pentagon and National Security Reporter for Foreign Policy. From London, Leila Milana Allen is a special correspondent at the PBS NewsHour. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.